Chapter twenty six of Demos, a story of English socialism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roxana Nazari. Demos, a story of English socialism by George Gissing. Chapter twenty six. Mutimer did not come to the manor for luncheon. Rodman, who had been spending an hour at the works, brought word that business pressed. A host of things had to be unexpectedly finished off and put in order. He, Alice, and Adela made pretense of a midday meal. Then he went into the library to smoke a cigar and meditate. The main subject of his meditation was an interview with Adela which he purposed seeking in the course of the afternoon. But he had also half a dozen letters of the first importance to dispatch to town by the evening post, and these it was well to get off-hand. He had finished them by half-past three. Then he went to the drawing-room, but found it vacant. He sought his wife's chamber. Alice was endeavouring to read a novel, but there was recent tear-shedding about her eyes, which had not come of the author's pathos. "'You'll be a pretty picture soon if that goes on,' Rotman remarked, with a frankness which was sufficiently brutal, in spite of his jesting tone. "'I can't think how you take it so lightly.' Alice replied with utter despondency, flinging the book aside. "'What's the good of taking it any other way? Where's Adela?' "'Adela?' She looked at him as closely as her eyes would let her. "'Why do you want her?' "'I asked you where she was. Please to get into the habit of answering my questions at once. It'll save time and future.' She seemed about to resent his harshness, but the effort cost her too much. She let her head fall forward almost upon her knees, and sobbed unrestrainedly. Rodman touched her shoulder and shook her, but not roughly. "'Do not be such an eternal fool,' he grumbled. "'Do you know where Adela is or not?' "'No, I don't,' came the smothered reply. Then, raising her head, "'Why do you think so much about Adela?' He leaned against the dressing-table and laughed mockingly. "'That's the matter, eh? You think I'm after her. Don't be such a goose.' "'I'd rather you called me a goose than a fool, Willis.' "'Why, there's not much difference. Now, if you'll sit up and behave sensibly, I'll tell you why I want her.' "'Really? Will you give me a kiss first? "'Poor blubbery princess. Pah! Your lips are like a baby's. "'Now just listen, and mind you hold your tongue about what I say. "'You know there used to be something between Adela and Eldon.' I have a notion it went farther than we know of. Well, I don't see why we shouldn't get her to talk him over into letting you keep your money, or a good part of it. So you see, it's you I'm thinking about after all, little stupid. Oh, you really mean that? Kiss me again. Look, I've wiped my lips. You really think you can do that, Willis? No, I don't think I can, but it's worth having a try. Eldon has a soft side, I know. The thing is to find her soft side. I'm going to have a try to talk her over. Now where is she likely to be? Out in the garden? Perhaps she's at her mother's. Confound it! Well, I'll go and look about. I can't lose time. You'll never get her to do anything for me, Willis. Very likely not. But the things that you succeed in are always the most unlikely, as you'd understand if you'd lived my life. At all events, I shan't have to give up my dresses. Hang your dresses! On the wardrobe pegs! 
He went downstairs again and out into the garden, thence to the entrance gate. Adela had passed it but a few minutes before, and he saw her a little distance off. She was going in the direction away from Wanley, seemingly on a mere walk. He decided to follow her and only join her when she had gone some way. She walked with her head bent, walked slowly and with no looking about her. Presently it was plain that she meant to enter the wood. This was opportune, but he lost sight of her as soon as she passed among the trees. He quickened his pace, saw her turning off the main path among the copses. In his pursuit he got astray. He must have missed her track. Suddenly he was checked by the sound of voices, which seemed to come from a lower level just in front of him. Cautiously he stepped forward, till he could see through hazel bushes that there was a steep descent before him. Below two persons were engaged in conversation, and he could hear every word. The two were Adela and Hubert Eldon. Adela had come to sit for the last time in the green retreat which was painfully dear to her. Her husband's absence gave her freedom. She used it to avoid the Rodmans and to talk with herself. She was, as we may conjecture, far from looking cheerfully into the future. Nor was she content with herself, with her behaviour in the drama of these two days. In thinking over the scene with her husband, she experienced a shame before her conscience which could not at first be readily accounted for, for of a truth she had felt no kind of shame in steadfastly resisting Mutimer's dishonourable impulse. But she saw now that in the judgment of one who could read all her heart she would not come off with unmingled praise. Had there not been another motive at work in her besides zeal for honour? Suppose the man benefiting by the will had been another than Hubert Eldon. Surely that would not have affected her behaviour. Not in practice, doubtless, but here was a question of feeling, a scrutiny of the soul's hidden velities. No difference in action, be sure, that must ever be upright, but what of the heroism in this particular case? The difference declared itself. Here there had been no heroism whatever. To strip herself and her husband when a moment's winking would have kept them well clad. Yes, but on whose behalf? Had there not been a positive pleasure in making herself poor that Hubert might be rich? There was that fatal element in the situation. She came out of the church palpitating with joy. The first assurance of her husband's ignominious yielding to temptation filled her with, not mere scorn, but with dread. Had she not been guilty of mock nobleness in her voice, her bearing? At the time she did not feel it, for the thought of Hubert was kept altogether in the background. Yes, but she saw now how it had shed light and warmth upon her. The fact was not to be denied, because her consciousness had not then included it. She was shamed. A pity, is it not? It were so good to have seen her purely noble, indignant with unmixed righteousness. But, knowing our Adela's heart, is it not even sweeter to bear with her? You will go far before you find virtue in which there is no dear sustaining comfort of self. For my part, Adela is more to me for the imperfection, infinitely more to me for the confession of it in her own mind. How can a woman be lovelier than when most womanly, or more precious than when she reflects her own weakness in clarity of soul? 
As she made her way through the wood, her trouble of conscience was lost in deeper suffering. The scent of undergrowths, which always brought back to her the glad days of maidenhood, filled her with the hopelessness of the future. There was no return on the path to life. Every step made those memories of happiness more distant and thickened the gloom about her. She could be strong when it was needful, could face the world as well as any woman who makes a veil of pride for her bleeding heart. But here, amid the sweet wood perfumes, in silence and secrecy, self-pity caressed her into feebleness. The light was dimmed by her tears. She rather felt than saw her way. And thus, with moist eyelashes, she came to her wonted resting-place. But she found her seat occupied, and by the man whom in this moment she could least bear to meet. Hubert sat there, bareheaded, lost in thought. Her light footfall did not touch his ear. He looked up to find her standing before him, and he saw that she had been shedding tears. For an instant she was powerless to direct herself. Then sheer panic possessed her, and she turned to escape. Hubert started to his feet. "'Mrs. Mutimer, Adela!' The first name would not have stayed her, for her flight was as unreasoning as that of a fawn. The second, her own name, uttered with almost desperate appeal, robbed her of the power of movement. She turned to bay, as though an obstacle had risen in her path, and there was terror in her white face. Hubert drew a little nearer and spoke hurriedly. "'Forgive me. I could not let you go. You seem to have come in answer to my thought. I was wishing to see you. Do forgive me.' She knew that he was examining her moist eyes. A rush of blood passed over her features. "'Not unless you are willing,' Hubert pursued, his voice at its gentlest and most courteous. "'But if I m might speak to you for a few minutes.' "'You have heard from Mr. Yottle?' Adela asked, without raising her eyes, trying her utmost to speak in a merely natural way. "'Yes. I happen to be at my mother's house. He came last night to obtain my address.' The truth was that a generous impulse, partly of his nature, and in part such as any man might know in a moment of unanticipated good fortune, had bade him put aside his prejudices and meet Mutimer at once on a footing of mutual respect. Incapable of ignoble exaltation, it seemed to him that true delicacy dictated a personal interview with the man who, judging from Yaddle's report, had so cheerfully acquitted himself of the hard task imposed by honour. But as he walked over from Agorth the zeal cooled. Could he trust Mutimer to appreciate his motives? Such a man was capable of acting honourably, but the power of understanding delicacies of behaviour was not so likely to be his. Hubert's prejudices were insuperable. To his mind, class differences necessarily argued a difference in the grain. And it was not only this consideration that grew weightier as he walked. In the great joy of recovering his ancestral home, in the sight of his mother's profound happiness, he all but forgot the thoughts that had besieged him since his meeting with Adela in London. As he drew near to Wanley, his imagination busied itself almost exclusively with her. Distrust and jealousy of Mutimer became fear for Adela's future. 
such a change as this would certainly have a dire effect upon her life. He thought of her frail appearance. He remembered the glimpse of her face that he had caught when her husband entered Mrs. Westlake's drawing-room, the startled movement she could not suppress. It was impossible to meet Mutimer with any show of good feeling. He wondered how he could have set forth with such an object. Instead of going to the manor, he turned his steps to the vicarage and joined Mr. Wyvern at luncheon. The vicar had, of course, heard nothing of the discovery as yet. In the afternoon Hubert started to walk back to Agworth, but instead of taking the direct road he strayed into the wood. He was loath to leave the neighbourhood of the manor. Intense anxiety to know what Adela was doing made him linger near the place where she was. Was she already suffering from brutal treatment? What wretchedness might she not be undergoing within those walls? He said she seemed to have sprung up in answer to his desire. In truth, her sudden appearance overcame him. Her tearful face turned to irresistible passion that yearning which, consciously or unconsciously, was at all times present in his life. Her grief could have but one meaning. His heart went out to her with pity as intense as its longing. Other women had drawn his eyes, had captured him with the love of a day, but the deep still affection which is independent of moods and impressions flowed ever towards Adela. As easily could he have become indifferent to his mother as to Adela. As a married woman she was infinitely more to him than she had been as a girl. From her conversation, her countenance, he knew how richly she had developed, how her intelligence had ripened, how her character had established itself in maturity. In that utterance of her name the secret escaped him before he could think how impossible it was to address her so familiarly. It was the perpetual keyword of his thoughts. Only when he had heard it from his own lips did he realize what he had done. When he had given the brief answer to her question, he could find no more words. But Adela spoke. "'What do you wish to say to me, Mr. Eldon?' Whether or no he interpreted her voice by his own feelings, she seemed to plead with him to be manly and respect her womanhood. "'Only to say the common things which any one must say in my position, but to say them so that you will believe they are not only a form. The circumstances are so strange. I want to ask you for your help. My position is perhaps harder than yours and Mr. Mutimer's, we must remember that there is justice to be considered. If you will give me your aid in doing justice as far as I am able... In fault of any other possible reply, he had involved himself in a subject which he knew it was far better to leave untouched. He could not complete his sentence, but stood before her with his head bent. Adela scarcely knew what he said. In anguish she sought for a means of quitting him of fleeing and hiding herself among the trees. His accent told him that she was the object of his compassion, and she had invited it by letting him see her in tears. Of necessity he must think that she was sorrowing on her own account. That was true indeed, but how impossible for him to interpret her grief rightly! The shame of being misjudged by him all but drove her to speak, and tell him that she cared less than nothing for the loss that had befallen her yet she could not trust herself to speak such words. Her heart was beating insufferably. 
all the woman in her rushed towards hysteria and cell abandonment. It was well that Hubert's love was of quality to stand the test of these terrible moments. Something he must say, and the most insignificant phrase was the best. "'Will you sit, rest after your walk?' She did so. Scarcely could she have stood longer. And with the physical ease there seemed to come a sudden mental relief. A thought sprang up, opening upon her like a haven of refuge. "'There is one thing I should like to ask of you,' she began, forcing herself to regard him directly. "'It is a great thing, I am afraid. It may be impossible.' "'Will you tell me what it is?' he said, quietly filling the pause that followed. "'I am thinking of New Wanley.' She saw a change in his face, slight, but still a change. She spoke more quickly. "'Will you let the works remain as they are, on the same plan? Will you allow the workpeople to live under the same rules? I have been among them constantly, and I am sure that nothing but good results have come of—' of what my husband has done. There is no need to ask you to deal kindly with them, I know that, but if you could maintain the purpose. It will be such a grief to my husband if all his work comes to nothing. There cannot be anything against your principles in what I ask. It is so simply for the good of men and women whose lives are so hard. Let New Wanley remain as an example. Can you do this? Hubert, as he listened, joined his hands behind his back and turned his eyes to the upper branches of the silver birch, which once in his thoughts he had likened to Adela. What he heard from her surprised him, and upon surprise followed mortification. He knew that she had in appearance adopted Mutimer's principles, but his talk with her in London at Mrs. Boscobel's had convinced him that her heart was in far other things than economic problems and schemes of revolution. She had listened so eagerly to his conversation on art and kindred topics. It was so evident that she was enjoying a temporary release from a mode of life which chilled all her warmer instincts. Yet she now made it her entreaty that he would continue Mutimer's work. Beginning timidly, she grew to an earnestness which it was impossible to think feigned. He was unprepared for anything of the kind. His emotions resented it. Though consciously harbouring no single unworthy desire, he could not endure to find Adela zealous on her husband's behalf. Had he misled himself? Was the grief that he had witnessed really that of a wife for her husband's misfortune? For whatever reason she had married Mutimer, and that could not be love, married life might have engendered affection. He knew Adela to be deeply conscientious, how far was it in a woman's power to subdue herself to love at the bidding of duty? He allowed several moments to pass before replying to her. Then he said, courteously but coldly, I am very sorry that you have asked the one thing I cannot do. Adela's heart sank. In putting a distance between him and herself, she had obeyed an instinct of self-preservation. Now that it was effected, the change in his voice was almost more than she could bear. "'Why do you refuse?' she asked, trying, though in vain, to look up at him. "'Because it is impossible for me to pretend sympathy with Mr. Mutimer's views. In the moment that I heard of the will, my action with regard to New Wanley was determined. 
what I purpose doing is so inevitably the result of my strongest convictions that nothing could change me. "'Will you tell me what you are going to do?' Adela asked, in a tone more like his own. "'It will pain you. Yet I should like to know. I shall sweep away every trace of the mines and the works and the houses and do my utmost to restore the valley to its former state.' He paused, but Adela said nothing. Her fingers played with the leaves which grew beside her. "'Your associations with Wanley, of course, cannot be as strong as my own. I was born here, and every dearest memory of my life connects itself with the valley as it used to be. It was one of the loveliest spots to be found in England. You can have no idea of the feelings with which I saw this change fall upon it, this desolation and defilement. I must use the words which come to me.' I might have overcome that grief if I had sympathized with the ends, but, as it is, I should act in the same way even if I had no such memories. I know all that you will urge. It may be inevitable that the green and beautiful spots of the world shall give place to furnaces and mechanics' dwellings. For my own part, in this little corner, at all events, the rum shall be delayed. In this manner I will give my instincts free play." Of New Wanley not one brick shall remain on another. I will close the mines, and grass shall again grow over them. I will replant the orchards, and mark out the fields as they were before. He paused again. You see why I cannot do as you ask. It was said in a gentler voice, for insensibly his tone had become almost vehement. He found a strange pleasure in emphasizing his opposition to her. Perhaps he secretly knew that Adela hung upon his words, and in spite of herself was drawn into the current of his enthusiasm. But he did not look into her face. Had he done so, he would have seen it fixed and pale. "'Then you think grass and trees of more importance than human lives?' She spoke in a voice which sounded coldly ironical in its attempt to be merely calm. I had rather say that I see no value in human lives in a world from which grass and trees have vanished. But in truth I care little to make my position logically sound. The ruling motive in my life is the love of beautiful things. I fight against ugliness because it's the only work in which I can engage with all my heart. I have nothing of the enthusiasm of humanity. In the course of centuries the world may perhaps put itself right again. I am only concerned with the present and I see that everywhere the tendency is towards the rule of mean interests, ignoble ideals. "'Do you call it ignoble?' broke in Adela. "'To aim at raising men from hopeless and degrading toil to a life worthy of human beings.' "'The end which you have in mind cannot be ignoble, but it is not to be reached by means such as these.' He pointed down to the valley. That may be the only way of raising the standard of comfort among people who work with their hands. I take the standpoint of the wholly unpractical man, and say that such efforts do not concern me. From my point of view, no movement can be tolerated which begins with devastating the earth's surface. You will clothe your workpeople better, you will give them better food and more leisure. In doing so you injure the class that has finer sensibilities, and give power to the class which not only postpones everything to material well-being, but more and more regards intellectual refinement as an obstacle in the way of progress. Progress, the word is sufficient. You have only to think what it has come to mean. 
It will be good to have an example of reaction.' "'When reaction means misery to men and women and little children?' "'Yes, even if it meant that. As far as I am concerned, I trust it will have no such results. You must distinguish between humanity and humanitarianism. I hope I am not lacking in the former. The latter seems to me to threaten everything that is most precious in the world.' then you are content that the majority of mankind should be fed and clothed and kept to labour? Personally, quite content, for I think it very unlikely that the majority will ever be fit for anything else. I know that at present they desire nothing else. Then they must be taught to desire more. Hubert again paused. When he resumed, it was with a smile which strove to be good-humoured. We had better not argue of these things. If I said all that I think, you would accuse me of brutality. In logic you will overcome me. Put me down as one of those who represent reaction and class prejudice. I am all prejudice. Adela rose. We have talked a long time, she said, trying to speak lightly. We have such different views. I wish there were less class prejudice. Hubert scarcely noticed her words. She was quitting him, and he clung to the last moment of her presence. "'Shall you go—eventually go to London?' he asked. "'I can't say. My husband has not yet been able to make plans.' The word irritated him. He half averted his face. "'Good-bye, Mr. Eldon.' She did not offer her hand. Durst not do so. Hubert bowed without speaking. When she was near the manor gates, she heard footsteps behind her. She turned and saw her husband. Her cheeks flushed, for she had been walking in deep thought. It seemed to her for an instant as if the subject of her preoccupation could be read upon her face. "'Where have you been?' Mutimer asked, indifferently. "'For a walk into the wood.' He was examining her, for the disquiet of her countenance could not escape his notice." Why did you go alone? It would have done Alice good to get her out a little. I'm afraid she wouldn't have come. He hesitated. Has she been saying anything to you? Only that she is troubled and anxious. They walked on together in silence, Mutimer with bowed head and knitted brows. End of chapter 26